Hey, Westridge, I'm excited this morning to introduce to our stage one of my favorite church planters of all time, Dr. Chris Causey. Chris was one of the very first guys to go through our launch church planting network. He and his wife, Jenny, moved to Boston, Massachusetts, a little town called Dedham, which is south of Boston, and planted Encounter Church. It's a church that reaches some of the most influential people in all of the Boston area. He and Jenny have a little girl named Ella, and they've got a new son coming on the way in August. Chris is one of the smartest people that I've ever been around in my life. He's the one that does all of our spiritual history tours when we go to Boston. He has his undergrad in biology and just finished his PhD in spiritual formation. Also, here's a little fun fact about Chris. The very first time he ever flew in an airplane, he jumped out of it at 14,000 feet in the air. Hey, Westridge, would you welcome to our stage Dr. Chris Causey. Today, I want to continue the series Because of Jesus, and I want to start where all great sermons start, an Australian police log from 2015. Um, My wife told me not to do the Australian accent. I will try, but it is hard because it's an Australian police log, and in my head when I read it, it's what I hear, okay? Um, So in 2015, uh, the police, uh, Sydney Police Department responds to a call um, in the northern suburbs. They've got a report of a man screaming, I'm going to kill you, uh, women, a woman screaming, sounds of furniture being thrown. And so they arrive at the scene, they pound on the door, and according to the police log, uh, the man who comes to the door is out of breath and rather flushed. The officer says, sir, where's your wife? The man responds, I don't have one. He says, well, where's your girlfriend then? He says, well, I don't have one of those either. And the police officer leans in. He says, look, we, our dispatch has heard the reports. We, we even heard the sounds of screaming. He leans in. He says, come on, mate. What have you done to her? Sorry, Jenny. Um, it's her birthday. Happy birthday to my wife. This is my gift to you. The man sheepishly steps back and he says it was a spider what what about the woman screaming yeah that was me I really hate spiders according to the police log the cops still not sure that they believe this man walked in sure enough furniture was all over the apartment and there lying on the the floor was the carcass and the remains of this Um, that's life size by the way Um, um, actually in Australia the spiders are really really famously large and that specific specific species gets to the size of about an adult human hand um, a male hand and so I'm just saying if that thing was in my apartment I would not scream and throw furniture. I'd hand him the keys. I'd tell him my lease runs out in six months, and then I'll just find a new place to live. You can have it, right? I mean, I'm moving out if that thing's moving in. I don't need a roommate. I got one. And, um, but the reality is, is that for all of us in this room, for joining us online, you probably have never had the cops called on your fear, but you know what it's like to be locked up inside of your fear. You know what it's like to be shackled with anxiety and concern And you don't need the police to show up at your house to throw you in prison because fear is already one. And this morning, I want you to hear me. Because of Jesus, we don't have to live there anymore. Because of Jesus, we have a key. And we can walk out 
we can release the chains and we can experience the freedom that we've just heard sung over us. And to get there, I want to take you to one of the more famous moments in the ministry of Jesus. Arguably, around this moment is the famous, most famous moment in Jesus' ministry, second to his resurrection. And it's in this moment that we see the key to walking out and to living in freedom and to experience courage. To get there, I want to take you to an account of that moment. It's written by one of the four biographers on the life of Jesus, a guy named Matthew. If you're new to the Christian faith or just starting to learn this, um, this thing called the Bible, with, it's a bit overwhelming and intimidating to have 66 books in the palm of your hand written thousands of years ago. And the simple gist of the Bible is you have the Old Testament and the New that's a two-volume set. Volume 1, the Old Testament, it's primarily focused on the, the promised land and the coming of the promised one. And then you have the second volume set called the New Testament, which is primarily focused on the arrival of the promised one and the people that flow out of that. That's the Bible summed up in about 35 seconds. The second volume, the New Testament, begins with four biographical accounts written by four different men who were living at the time, three of them um, had direct or indirect contact with Jesus, and another one was a historical researcher who was also connected to the original group of followers. The first book in the New Testament is the book of Matthew, or the letter of Matthew. And Matthew is the man I want to spend time reading this morning with you. Because Matthew gives us in his account some nuanced details about this moment that I think is really particularly helpful for us as we try to unlock the prison of fear that we live inside of or experience. Matthew is a man who was going about the course of everyday life. He was really good at what he did. He was an accountant. He worked for the Roman Empire. He was essentially an IRS agent. And like the IRS today, Roman agents, tax agents weren't that popular back then too. And so this man, while really, really wealthy and really influential in the power that he wielded, he was also a man who wasn't really liked by his neighbors and friends. And one day, working at his desk, doing what he did, Jesus walks up and begins a conversation. This conversation is so engaging, it's so life-transforming, that Matthew, sitting at his desk, stands up on his two feet, and he walks out, and he, he gives up everything that he had to begin to follow Jesus, to spend his life with Jesus, and to become what we now call the 12 apostles, to become one of those. Now, you may not be sure about the Jesus thing this morning, but what kind of person would you have to meet at your workplace that would make you walk away from it? What kind of man would you have to interact with that would be so compelling, so engaging, that you would leave your life's career, you would leave your comfort, you would leave your financial security, and walk away from all of it because of him? I mean, that was the man, the God that we call Jesus. That's pretty amazing. And Matthew had experienced that. He spends the next few years of his life following Jesus and watching Jesus up close. Because Matthew was Jewish, he had a particular heart for his Jewish relatives, friends, and neighbors who didn't know who Jesus was. And so Matthew set out to to capture with a distinct Jewish flavor and description all the details that he had observed. 
And because he was an accountant, because he paid attention to details, you see that kind of bleed through the words that he chooses when he writes the account of Jesus' life. There are details and nuances in the passage that we're getting ready to read that would have leapt out to that first century Jewish audience who would have been the recipients of this letter. It begins in Matthew 14 and verse 22. It says that immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to him walking on the lake. And so you've got a couple things here that before I continue, it's just worth pointing out. Remember, Matthew, in the language of his day as an accountant, is paying attention to details that we may miss 2,000 years later. And there's a lot of nuance and word selection that Matthew does in this passage to paint a bigger picture of what's playing out. Matthew was there that day. He's an eyewitness to this. And so what he's writing about is the group of disciples being put in a boat and traveling across the Sea of Galilee. The boat wouldn't have been too much larger, um, just a little bit larger than the carpet that I'm currently standing on. There would have been 12 men. They would have started rowing. Um, and Matthew records in the language of his day that they had made it 30 stadia in distance, which is about half the path in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a little bit more than six miles across. 30 stadia roughly translates into 3.41 miles. So they had gone 3.41 miles, and we know from the fact that Jesus begins to move out towards them in the dawn that what has probably transpired is at least nine hours. For those mathematicians in the room, you've probably already computed that they have gone 0.3788 miles per hour for the last nine hours all through their arms. They have not slept. They have been rowing all night. They are physically emotionally exhausted. The pace in which they have traveled is about the same speed as a giant tortoise. So if you've ever seen a giant tortoise in the zoo, you have seen something that moves a little bit faster than what that boat was traveling that night for nine hours. Pitch black, can't see anything. And then Matthew tells us that as dawn was coming, as the sun was beginning to peep above the horizon, that when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they noticed this figure. And, you know, some of these guys are fishermen, and they know fishing. And one of the key rules of fishing is that 3.41 miles out on the lake, people don't walk. That's kind of fishing 101. People don't walk in the middle of the lake at dawn or any time of the day, right? And so what do they do? It says that they're terrified. And it says, Matthew's wanting to give us a little bit more insight. Why are they terrified? It says that they scream out, it's a ghost, as they cried out in fear. Now, this is important because Jewish superstition of the day, like many superstitions, even in modern world today, um, cultures believed if you saw a ghost, it was a sign you were about to die. It was the other side coming to get you. We in our culture have something called the Grim Reaper, right? That's another superstition attached to this idea that right before you die, you see the Grim Reaper coming from you. This is what they're experiencing. These men, physically, emotionally, exhausted, are convinced life is over. It's the end. This is how we go down. In the middle of the lake, exhausted, spent, and drowning. 
And Jesus, in the midst of their fear, cries out, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Which is kind of a strange response, right? I mean, I doubt that any of you, when your kid cries out because that spider showed up, um, that you would say, oh, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid, right? Like, that's not a normal thing to say in the course of everyday response. But why does Matthew record that? It's because this is what Jesus says. Matthew's in the boat that night. He remembers screaming like a girl, it's a ghost. He remembers vividly that moment, that horror. And he remembers the words, take courage, it is I. Now, what's interesting is that for many of us, we know what fear is like. And when we imagine courage, we picture courage to be the opposite of fear. Now, fear is an emotion. It's a response to a circumstance. And because we see courage as the opposite of fear, we can easily fall into this false notion that courage must be an emotion too. Because it's the opposite of fear. It's the emotional opposite of fear. But courage is not an emotion. Jesus can't command an emotion. If you've ever had your kids in the back seat and they're not happy, telling them to be happy never works. Ever. You can't command an emotion. But you can command a choice. And this is what Jesus does. He commands them to be courageous because courageous is a choice. Fear may have, you may have fear, you may experience fear. You didn't choose that emotion. But Jesus comes along to these disciples in this very dark moment, this very emotionally exhausted moment. And he says, you may have fear, but fear doesn't have to have you. You can choose courage. And that's why his opening statement to them is take courage. Which is really encouraging because maybe right now you feel afraid. You feel overwhelmed with anxiety. And you feel the weight and pressure, whether it's in your marriage, your finances, whether it's in your relationships, whether you're single and you're wondering what is life going to look like? How, where do I meet Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright? Or maybe you're on the other side and you've just lost a spouse and you're trying to imagine on the other side of death what life's going to look like for you. The fact is that you can choose courage. And the beauty of this passage is the fact that you, not only does Jesus call us to, to take courage, he also shows us how in this passage. Again, it, it's really easy to miss it. Matthew pays attention to detail and we can skim over the details because we're familiar with this passage or we, we miss the, the language of the day had a lot more kind of weight to the word selection. The first part I want to point out to you for how we can experience courage is found in verse 22. It says immediately, right? Jesus sends them. It makes the disciples go into the boat and go ahead of them to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. The crowd is a really important detail to know. See, immediately there's something that happened right before this moment. What happens right before this moment is one of the most famous moments in Jesus's ministry. It's the only miracle second to the resurrection that's in all four biographical accounts written by those four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the, the feeding of what is called the 5,000. That's the moment that precedes this moment. And that miracle is in all four Gospels. And I think there's a reason that all four Gospels choose to make that miracle present in their accounting of Jesus' life. 
They didn't have to. And I think the reason it shows up is that it's an amazing moment that, quite honestly, we can easily miss. Because Matthew is a detailed person. And so the feeding of 5,000, that sounds like a large crowd. But in that day, when they counted crowds, they counted by head of household, the men. So this is 5,000 men. Now, this wasn't a promise keepers gathering or some men's retreat. This was family showing up to hear Jesus speak. And so realistically, we're probably in the, the, the window of about 25,000 people who've shown up that day to hear Jesus speak. So when it says he dismissed the crowd, it means that he dismissed 25,000 plus people from that day who had gathered. And what did he do with 25,000 people that made such a mark that all four gospel writers wrote about it? He fed them all. He fed them all with essentially a little kid's Happy Meal, right? If you remember in that moment, they're starving. Jesus tells his disciples to get some food. And all they say is like, hey, we found a kid with a, like a fish sandwich Happy Meal. This is probably not enough. And Jesus is like, that's perfect. That's exactly what I need. And he takes the little kid's Happy Meal and he feeds 25,000 people with a poor, cheap kind of Happy Meal. And to give you a little bit of insight, I, I've taken the equivalent of what that would have been that day. This is fish in a can, right? The way God intended it to be. <coughs> and I was curious, like, how much of this would it take to feed 25,000 people? And so I did the math. And what I came down to is it would take about 37,500 cans of tuna fish to feed 25,000 plus people. Now, this is not Jesus going down to Walmart and pulling it off the shelf. This is Jesus with his little wands backing up tractor trailers. Beep, beep. And he's like, put the pallet here and the pallet here and the pallet here. And, you know, and it goes on and on and on and on. And it's like pallet after pallet after pallet of this. <coughs> and what's incredible is if you stacked all of those, it would almost be 4,000 feet. It's over 3,900 feet tall, tuna fish. If you were to kind of get a visual for that, the Empire State Building <clears throat> stacked three times on top of each other is what it would take to get this much fish. This is why all four gospel accounts talk about this moment. Because <clears throat> a Happy Meal feeds 25,000 people. It's an incredible moment. Now, here's the thing. Immediately, they get into the boats. What do they do right before they step into the boats? They're given baskets by Jesus. There's 12. They get 12 baskets, and he says, hey, go pick up the leftovers. They go around. They gather. <clears throat> they get in the boat. They have the leftover baskets, and then they start to row. Nine hours later, pitch black dark. They're still rowing. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. They're straining. They're pressing. They're pushing. Arm strength. And periodically, they would have been annoyed. They were like, oh, and baskets would have shoved up behind their arms. They would have had to push the baskets out the way to pull their arms back. Bumping up against their legs with every move of the boat, with every rocking of the wave, would have been basket after basket after basket after basket. And here's the thing. The disciples had forgotten in the darkness what God had already done in the light. Hours before, 
They had seen him miraculously provide. And throughout that evening in the boat, while they rowed, they would have been constantly reminded by the bumping of baskets on their leg. But what had happened? They had forgotten in the darkness what God had done in the light. And that's not just them. The challenge is, is that we can fall into the same trap, too. We can easily look past what God has done in our past. You and I, in the midst of fear, in the midst of anxiety, we can easily look past what God has done in our past. We are surrounded, I'm convinced, we are surrounded in our lives with the leftovers of God's past faithfulness. You and I have constant reminders. We have those baskets bumping up against our leg every single day. Maybe it's your car, maybe it's the clothes that you wear, maybe it's the pantry that you grab food out of, maybe it's the person you wake up beside, whether it's the job that you go to. We all have baskets that bump up against our leg. And the reality is that courage for your present moment can be found in God's previous movement in your life. That is a place, that is a how you can engage and grab hold of courage. You can step into that. And one of the, the daily disciplines to, to kind of foster that is gratitude. I think gratitude is an attitude defibrillator. It shocks you back into reality. Um, I told you that our, uh, my wife's pregnant next month. Henry will be born. But what you don't know is that for seven years, we struggled with infertility. For seven years, we cried out through tears, God, would you give us another child? And I remember a defining moment for me in that journey was one morning getting ready and this insight hitting me like a ton of bricks. That I was crying out for a miracle for God to show up. And the thought bubbled into my mind, what if God has already done a miracle? What if you were never meant to have a son or a daughter, Chris, and you wake up every single day and you call her Ella and she's a miracle? And that day I began not just to ask God for another son or a daughter, I began to thank God for the son and the daughter I already had. Because I realized I'd look past one miracle and asking for another. And the reality is, is that maybe for some of us right now, where you are, you're crying out for a miracle. And I just want to encourage you, don't look past the ones that are already there. Because when you pay attention to them, you can find strength for your present moment. But fortunately, that's not the only thing present. Jesus, in his response, actually gives us another how in our courage. He says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. I've already told you, that's weird. Like, if, if you go home today and you open the door and your spouse or your sibling or your roommate is like, hey, who is it? And you go, it is I. Like, that's weird, right? Who does that? <clears throat> and the fact that Jesus says it tells us there must be something to it. The fact that Matthew records it to the letter tells us that there's something really in it that we need to hear. Remember that Jewish, uh, that Matthew's Jewish, he's writing for a Jewish audience. They're the original recipient of this letter. And what they would have heard when they first read this letter was not, it is I. They would have had a different moment pass into their mind. They would have had a memory actually already present in their brains that would have instantly flooded back. That memory, that it is I, 
was the Jewish equivalent of I am. The I am is what they would have heard when Jesus says, it is I. Jesus is calling to mind something for them. Jesus is saying as he's walking on the water, when they say, who is it? He says, I am. The memory would have been Moses. This no kind of nobody shepherd who used to be a somebody for 40 years had lived in the desert, wandering kind of aimlessly. And then God meets him in a bush and says, hey, go tell the most powerful person in the world to let my people go. So Moses goes into a palace with a man who thinks he's God. Maybe you have a boss who thinks he's God, but he doesn't have a palace and armed guards to kill you if you disagree, right? This one does. So he walks into the palace and he says, hey, Pharaoh, you don't remember me. I used to be a somebody, but now I'm a nobody. I'm actually still on your most wanted list, but fortunately the reward's kind of small and no one's been able to find me. But that's a secondary point. I'm here today to tell you that I met a God out in the desert who spoke to a bush. Second story I'll tell you later. He told me to tell you to let his people go free. And Pharaoh says, time out. Okay, um, desert man. Um, so just to be clear, you're saying a God talked to you through a bush has come to you to tell me to let my people go free, the Jewish people who are my entire slave labor, who are the backbone of my economic and financial system, who are the invisible gears that make our culture run. You want me to let them go free. Yes, that's what he told me to tell you. <laughs> right, I mean, like guards, get him. And then he says, on the off chance, what is this God's name? Fortunately, Moses had asked because you need to be able to name drop if you're going into the most powerful man's palace. And he says, oh, his name, I am. And Pharaoh leans forward and says, I am? I am what? Oh, I am creator. I am sustainer. I am Lord. I am king of the universe. I am majestic. I am holy. I am righteous. I am that I am. I will be. I was. I will forever be. I am peace. I am power. I am majesty. I am the host, the, the commander of angel armies. I am the one who holds everything in the palm of his hand. I am that I am. Bam. Right? The most epic mic drop ever in human history. That's Jesus' response. I am. When the, when the people cry out and they're terrified, Jesus just says, I am. I have a seven-year-old little girl named Ella, and one of our nighttime rituals is that she— um, we put her to bed, we pray, we read the Bible, and then we read a storybook. And so a few months back, um, she was reading a storybook, and I hear, I'm in the kitchen, my wife's putting her to bed, and I hear, Daddy! And um, so I walk into the room, and I'm like, yes, pumpkin? She was like, Daddy, Mommy said there's a spider in this chapter, kind of like that spider earlier, you know? Will you lay down with me? And so I get in the bed, and she takes her arm, takes my arm, and she kind of pulls herself close, in, and I feel her relax a little bit. And she's like, okay, Mommy, go ahead. 
my wife reads and um, she gets done and I walk out of the room and the next night, again, I'm in the kitchen and I hear, daddy, I walk in and I'm like, yes, pumpkin. She's like, mommy said there's a snake in this chapter. Will you lay down with me? Again, I get in the bed. She takes my arm. She puts it around her and she pulls herself close. Jenny finishes reading and as I get out of the bed, I said, hey, sweetheart, um, I feel you relax. Like, why do you want daddy to come lay down with you. She said, oh, daddy, I feel stronger when you're with me. And I walked out of the room and I was like, man, my daughter gets it. Like if I'm being honest, like if we're being honest as Christians in this room, Christians joining us online, like we treat God's presence the way we treat our mom's compliment when they tell us that we're good at something. Right? There are people who end up on American Idol who think they can sing because their mama told them they could sing. <laughs> and they can't sing. And sometimes I think as Christians, we treat God's presence like that kind of statement. It's like, yeah, but. Like what else? And what Jesus shows up and steps into that night is something that I think my daughter intuitively understands, something that I oftentimes struggle to grab hold of and grasp. It's that when you have the right who beside you, it doesn't matter what you walk through. You can walk through anything if the right who is beside you, carrying you through it. The right who beside you can allow you to walk through hell. It can allow you to walk through high water. It can allow you to walk through seasons of struggle, through periods and trials. It can allow you to walk through chances and situations where you're not sure where the food's going to come from or how long this marriage can last. It can take you through dark places. It can take you through hard spaces. When you have the right who beside you, you can go through anything. It doesn't matter what it is because the who is trumping the what, no matter what it is that you find yourself in. And now Jesus is trying to communicate that courage for the present can be found by focusing on God's presence in your present. It is not a throwaway promise. It is the central promise of the Christian faith, that God is right beside you, present with you, sustaining you, giving you life, that you can walk through seasons and struggles when you have the right who. And hear me, this isn't just me explaining a biblical passage. This is something I've experienced in my own life because I am the least likely person to have ever been a church planner. When I heard church planner, I think person who does landscaping at churches. I don't think person who starts. Like, I am not a person who would have ever pictured being on this stage. Like, when I got the call, whatever that meant, like, for me, that's like, oh, the intern angel responsible for sending emails sent to AO well what was supposed to go to gmail because there was some chris out there on gmail but i got it at aol because like i'm more comfortable with spreadsheets than i am on stages like my wife is like you don't even like people and i'm like i know like what in the world like i am the least likely candidate to be a pastor and especially a church planner because that's terrifying my first working memory in life was of losing my father when I was three or four years old. Every single night for my first decade, I would pray. We didn't grow up in a religious home, but I would pray this one thing. God, you took my father. Please don't take my mother. I don't want to be a widow. 
I prayed that every single night of my life. I was terrified. I know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night and have panic attacks. I know what it's like to be plagued with anxiety. I live with an anxiety disorder. And so what I'm talking about to you is not a good explanation of a biblical passage. It is the personal experience of what I've seen God do in my life. That I have found in the midst of this journey, as terrifying as it is, when we stepped out and uprooted our lives and moved into a community we had never lived in before, when we started a church that we had never started a church ever before, in a community that's 1.69% evangelical. They don't even want a church there. Six months into starting, we find out they don't want a church and that we're renting the middle school and they kick us out of the middle school because they're uncomfortable with a church using a public school building. And so now we're homeless. Every single night, feeling the anxiety of God, where do we go? And every single night, crying out to heaven, constantly God, I'm not enough. I am not enough. I don't know if you've ever said that. I am not enough, God. And to hear back from heaven every single time, but I am enough. And what I've seen is a God who is able, in response to my yes, in response to my courage, That courage often has preceded the change that I've prayed for, that I've believed in, that I've ached and yearned for. And I've seen that God take obstacles and morph them into opportunities, take problems and turn them into places of possibility, to take setbacks and to turn them into setups. And when the school kicked us out, God had another place for us in our community that allowed us to go permanent. And it was a terrifying faith step. But every single portion of our journey, Westridge has been there. You, your generosity, you sacrifice in your giving, not realizing it's just not affecting the people living here. It's affecting people in our community. That everyday people walk into a physical space that I never imagined we would be in because of you. Because of your generosity, because of your sacrifice, because of your faith. I know it's hard as a young family. We are to give sacrificially, but you do. And because of you, God is using you. He's used you in my journey to inspire me and to inspire my family to keep pressing on. But he's also used it in the lives of the people that I get to pastor. You have transformed messes into messages of hope. A few months ago, we had our largest Easter celebration, 412 people, our biggest attendance ever after your team came up and served at the biggest community event that we have ever had. And then the next week after that, we got to have a baptism service. And just three of the people baptized are probably one of my favorite moments so far in this journey. First person walks into the water. They had completely checked out on God. When she was seven, she had lost her father. And she said, if there's a God, he takes fathers of seven-year-old girls away, and I don't want anything to do with them. And for three decades, she had lived her life in response to that kind of philosophy. And then she gets down on her knees one night, and she says, God, if losing my earthly father was what it took for you to become my heavenly father, then it was worth it. And then she gets out of the water, and the next lady walks in, and she, she came to the church a year ago because somebody invited her. And she had She was an addict, and she had kind of gotten to a place, if I can get my adult children out of the house, then I can give up on living. 
I just got to get them through. And she comes the first Sunday and she says she experiences something she hadn't felt in a long time and it was hope. She comes back the next week, she experiences hope again. The next week, she, then she goes and listens to every single message that we had ever done that was on our podcast. And she's like, every time I listened, I felt hope. I'd forgotten what that had felt like. We don't have hype, people. We have hope. And there's something different about hope. It has power. It has substance. It goes down to deep places. It penetrates souls. It moves more than emotion. It moves lives. And it moved that woman to step into the water because what she had experienced, she thought was a hope, that she thought was a what, she found out was a who, and his name was Jesus, and that he was still able to bring dead things back to life. And she walks up to me, regularly on Sundays and says, I just need you, to, I just want to remind you, I'm alive today. And the reason I'm alive today is because of this church. And if this church hadn't existed, I wouldn't be alive. And I just want to tell you, Westridge, she wouldn't be alive today if it hadn't been for this church. She's alive because you're alive, because you give, because you sacrifice, because you lean in. She walks out of the water and then someone else steps in. This person completely on the opposite end of the spectrum. She's a mover and a shaker. She's a global influencer. She graduated from Ivy League. She's a senior executive. She's in Bangladesh and then Berlin. And then she's back to Boston on Sunday mornings to greet people as they walk through our doors. And she'd shown up at the church because she was at the top of her game. She makes things happen and she knew something inside was missing. She thought, well, maybe it's some spirituality. Maybe I'll look into that. And then she comes to Encounter Church, and what she experiences is not a what, but it's a who too. And to see her get out of the water, and I've watched three people just in the last year that God has transformed, has been a constant reminder that oftentimes courage precedes the change that we pray for. And that for you today, whatever that choice is, whether it's to step across and to begin to follow Christ like I did August 7, 2001, whether it's to step into this church and to give for the first time or to say, sign me up, I want to be a team member, I want to start participating, I don't want to just sit in the back row and spectate anymore. I want to be a part of what God is doing in this community through this church. Whatever that courage choice is, know this, that because of Jesus, because of his past faithfulness, in your life, and because of his presence in your present, you can have courage today. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the power. Thank you for the hope that comes in you. Thank you for life that you give, for the way that you break through what we oftentimes see as breakdowns. For the marriage that's struggling today, God, for the couple wondering about their finances, for the single lady and the single man wondering about the next season of life, for those who have tried and tasted and done everything, but know that there's something still missing. God, I pray that today would be the day that all of them take courage steps into the next step that you have for them. And thank you that we can take a next step because Jesus, ultimately, you took the first step and that you pursued us when we were running from you. So thank you for that name, that name that is above all other names, the name of Jesus that I pray, amen.